0: Кадры, которые мы получили только что Владимир Путин, никто связи.
1: не слушал Послушайте Привет. В силу Это Навальный, в я уже свою работу, а безопасности С новым вас. С Новым
0: веком. Putin launches the largest land invasion in Europe since World War II and escalates his bombing of civilian targets. Led by its charismatic president, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine mounts a David and Goliath-style resistance that inspires the world. A surprisingly unified West imposes the most devastating sanctions package in history, isolating Russia and effectively cutting it off from the global economy. And across the globe, many are asking, has Putin become unhinged and what does that mean going forward? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me somewhere in the D.C. metro area is Angela Stent, a professor at Georgetown University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of the 2019 book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. Angela also served in the U.S. State Department Office of Policy Planning in the administrations of both President Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. She was also a national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia in the Bush administration and was a member of the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe's advisory panel. Welcome back to The Vertical, Angela. I hope I didn't leave anything out of your very impressive resume. Uh, It's great to have you back on.
1: It's great to be back on, two,
0: and know you didn't leave anything out. Good. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to have you on more often in the future. So, Angela, <laughs> there are three din- dynamics that I'm kind of watching at the moment. <laughs> And the first, of course, is the one we're all watching, the progress of the Russian invasion, the sieges of Kiev and Kharkiv and Mariupol. Uh, This is going a lot slower than many of us had anticipated, and certainly a lot slower than Vladimir Putin or his generals had anticipated, partially due to the fierce resistance from the Ukrainians, partially due to the shocking underperformance of the Russian armed forces. Kherson fell this week, but it's the first major city to fall, which is nothing short of shocking, given that we're into day eight of of this invasion. The second dynamic I'm watching, which I'm sure you're watching as well, is how quickly the sanctions inside Russia will really start to bite, both among ordinary Russians and among the elite. These are This is an unprecedented sanctions package, effectively cutting Russia off from the world economy, but sanctions take time. And third, and related to this, is the domestic political fallout inside of Russia as the sanctions hit and as Russian casualties mount. We're seeing surprising opposition to the war inside of Russia. And the question on my mind is this. It's kind of like a race against time. Can the Ukrainians hold out long enough until the pain becomes unbearable inside of Russia? Is this how you would frame the situation, Angela? Am I missing anything? And what are you watching for as this unfolds?
1: No, no. I'm watching those things. I think we have to assume that Vladimir Putin was really given very bad advice by the people around him about what to expect in Ukraine. I mean, we know that he doesn't understand Ukraine and he hasn't understood Ukraine for a long time. But the fact that they so underestimated the resistance that they would meet in Ukraine, the determination of all those Russophone, uh, you know, Ukrainians who live in the East, their determination to fight for Ukraine, Mm -hmm. the people in Kharkiv. I think they completely underestimated that Um, and just the resolve and the will. And I think, you know, Putin has this view clearly that Ukraine is really a very divided country uh, and that there's a small group of quote unquote, you know, fascist nationalists Mm -hmm. uh, who, who are Ukrainian patriots and the others aren't. And I think the other side of that is how ill prepared the Russian army was for this. You know, I was looking at Russia. You know, official media in the weeks running up to this, and they really didn't prepare their population for this. They said there was a crisis, it was caused by the United States and NATO, Russia was threatened, but they really didn't tell them that they really were about to go to war. And if you look at the social media posts from Ukraine of these captured teenage Russian soldiers, mm-hmm. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't even know what country they were in. And we hear uh, lots of rumors. um, I I don't know how how much detail we have of this, that Russian individual soldiers and some small units are surrendering. Uh, They really... They don't want to fight. After all, in July, President Putin published this marathon, you know, 5,000-word article telling Ukrainians that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. The Ukrainians are your brothers and sisters. And now you're sending people their fodder, yeah. really, to kill these people. So um, the much vaunted Russian military, which has really rebuilt uh, since, particularly since the Russo-Georgia war in 2008, but steadily rebuilt, is obviously much stronger than the Ukrainian army, but they're partly being stopped in their tracks. And unfortunately, that means, of course, that they're now resorting to indiscriminate bombing and killing uh, of civilians too, uh, which I think is partly a result of the fact that their campaign has has gone so badly. And I think the final thing I'll say on this is, and I'm sure you've seen it, uh, two days after the invasion began, RIA Novosti, you know, a a government-run media agency, published on its website an article talking about the rapid victory, how the Ukrainians had welcomed them without none, etc., Of course, they've taken that article down now, but the fact that it was up for long enough uh, for us to understand what they thought was gonna happen just shows you how out of touch
0: the Kremlin was with reality. Yeah, one of the biggest, I mean, I was not surprised by the Ukrainian uh, resistance and nor I'm sure were you, and we all expected anybody that knows anything about Ukraine knows that the Ukrainians are fiercely patriotic and that they're gonna fight. I I, I always say never get in a fight with the Ukrainian. You may win, but you're gonna get a black eye. But what did surprise me, it surprised me a lot was just the, how, how poorly the Russian armed forces are performing, even given the Ukrainian resistance. And I was I, – I don't know if they thought they could do this on the cheap, if they just did a quick shock and awe that the Ukrainians were going to get scared and, and run away with their tails between their legs. What do you attribute to the poor performance of the Russian army? Well, I can only assume that they haven't been well trained,
1: and even when they were, you know, amassed around for U- Ukraine for weeks in tents, um, they 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 had didn't prepare them for what they were going to encounter. I can only assume that. Then I do wonder, you know, this is the COVID pandemic, and and vaccination rates are pretty low in Russia. I wonder how many of those young recruits, uh, right. Have- Contract once, you know, got sick. We don't know. We know that there were field hospitals there. They could have been dealing with that too. So as far as I understand, you would have thought that the training of those uh, soldiers and their political indoctrination, which of course exists now again
0: in Russia, would have done a better job than we see. Now, when, when we're, as we're looking at this kind of um, – this dual – this split-screen situation unfold, the war on the ground in Ukraine, the kinetic war, and the Western response, which is – is in and, and you know, you've kind of drawn your time in government on this. How do you think the administration's looking at this, and how is this being looked at in Western capitals? Are they basically hoping that the sanctions are going to bite and force the Russians to back off before they can take Kyiv? Is, is this the way – it's being looked at from western capitals
1: I don't know whether they really anyone really thinks in the Biden administration or in Europe that you can really hold off the Russian army from taking Kiev. It may take them a very long time and it may be very difficult for them to hold it. You know, President Biden made the principal decision in the beginning that there will not be U.S. troops in Ukraine fighting Russians. Uh, NATO has said the same thing. There are people who think that was the wrong thing to do, or at least the U.S. should have considered using air power um, over Ukraine. But of course, you do run the risk anyway yes. of some direct encounter between American and Russian troops and then who knows where that would escalate. And right. we're gonna come on, I think, to Vladimir Putin's state of mind. Yes. Uh, but in his current state of mind, I think this would not be good. So I think they were hoping that the sanctions might uh influence the Kremlin to withdraw, to rethink what it's doing. So far it hasn't. Um, I think that they're very tough sanctions. Um, They're tougher sanctions than most people thought would happen, including on oligarchs, including on Putin himself, uh, obviously on the banks. But I think the people who are feeling this more immediately are more ordinary Russians, yep. right? They're going to the ATM and they can't get money out um, They, You know, they don't have access. A lot of the websites and th- things like that aren't working anymore. They're going to feel it. it. These kinds of sanctions, I think, are not enough to deter Putin and the people around him from rethinking what they're doing. I don't think Putin counted on how tough the sanctions would be, but they knew sanctions would be there. If they're really determined to do this, the sanctions are not going to deter them from doing it.
0: I mean, the, the question on a lot of people's minds right now is that within the elite, and this goes beyond the sanctions, I mean, we're talking about the absolute total isolation of Russia from the world. You saw as well as I did the vote in the U.N. General Assembly this week. Um, we have European and North American airspace completely closed to Russia. They've woken up in a new world, and you have to wonder what kind of effect that is going to have on the on the Russian streets and on the Russian elite, and if that can can, can change the dynamic a bit.
1: Right, if we talk about the street, I mean, I've been so impressed by all these people going out and protesting, thousands of them. I think six 6,000 have been arrested. We know how repressive Putin's Russia has become, particularly in the last year after Navalny's uh, jailing and the, the banning of all opposition groups. Um, so that, you know, and we know that the educated urban elite um, are very much against this. We've seen all the petitions from um, journalists, artists, cultural figures, and some businessmen too, business people too. That opposition is certainly there. I think some of those people are leaving now. I yes. mean, last, you know, they closed down that wonderful independent radio station Echo so yes. Moscow. Uh, I'm sure you've been on it. I've been on it. This yep. was one of the most lively um, yeah. uh, media in Russia. They closed down the TV Rain, Dosh
0: TV. Uh, yeah.
1: So they uh, they they threw all those those people out. So a number of them um, are certainly leaving. But there still is a significant number of Russians who only watch state media, and you've seen the interviews with them in the various media, and they just believe the lies that are being told to them on state media, that this is, you know, they're fascists and Nazis running Ukraine, and they're threatening Russia itself, um, and Russia is going to go in and clean that up, and, and they don't believe that this kind of indiscriminate bombing is going on. So. It would have to take something else um, for those people to understand what the real situation is.
0: Yeah, and I mean it's remarkable. I mean they're they're you know protecting Russians and they're bombing Kharkiv civilian areas, which is probably the most Russian-speaking city in in, in all of Ukraine. They're denazifying Ukraine, but yet this week they hit a Holocaust memorial in in Kiev. You mentioned Navalny, Angela, and I was surprised to see this because he is, despite the fact of being in jail, he is apparently not silent. Um, I don't know how he's getting his messages out. (laughs) He's called for protests across Russia. Um, Now, we're going to see if that, that bears fruit, but he did call for that this week. So um we wanna I did want to get to the idea of Putin's rationality because this is something that 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 is on a lot of people's minds. Uh you literally wrote the book on Putin. Um I've I've been following this man since he was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, and I was a, a young journalist in St. Petersburg with a lot more hair than I have today. Um I've been I've been watching this man for a long time, and something seems a bit off. I mean, I don't like to engage in pop psychology on the, on the program, but yet there are a lot of questions about his rationality. People are asking, has he lost the plot? Has he come unhinged? And what I wanted you to kind of speak to is what does that mean for policy? I mean, you've been in in government making policy toward Russia. When you're dealing with somebody that you think might not be a rational actor, how does that affect the calculation in terms of making policy?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. So I I guess I've had 14 dinners or lunches with President Putin over the years at the Valdai International Discussion Club. And I would say that the themes that we've heard from him in the past few months have always been there. I mean, I've heard, you know, all the criticism of Ukraine. I've heard all the criticism about what happened at the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, so the, the themes, the grievances he has, um, have been there and really were on display at the Munich Security Conference 15 years ago mm-hmm. when he made that speech. Lambasting the United States and NATO. But I think what's changed, as you say, is there seems to be a lack of rationality here. I mean, the Putin that we saw in the past years uh, was pragmatic and not not a real risk taker. You know, they went, they had the war with Georgia in 2008, but they didn't go to Tbilisi. They could have taken Tbilisi and taking taken President Saakashvili, but they didn't. You know, they recognized the two entities, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and then they left. And even in 2014, yes, uh, they annexed Crimea and they started a war in the Donbass, but they didn't take any more territory. And something has clearly happened uh, to him. You know, some of the rumors have to do with he's been isolated for two years yeah. because of COVID. We see these ridiculously long tables, uh, you, know, <laughs> he, you know, in fact, in President Zelensky today gave a news conference, and I saw some of it, where he directly addressed Putin in Russian and said, come on, you know, I'm a real muzhik We can sit next to each other. Right. We've seen these these, these long tables. Um, you know, there is a question, is there a health issue with him? Who knows? But it's very difficult when you're a policymaker then because you're dealing with someone and you're not sure whether this is an act. I mean, some people believe it's the kind of, you know, the madman theory, the right,
0: Nixon, Yeah.
1: other people to think that you're crazy, they're not, you know, they won't push back or it's real. You know, you have to deal with the person as if maybe they really are unhinged. Um, And I suppose that therefore, uh, you know, urges caution. I mean, I was glad that when Putin announced that his deterrent nuclear forces were gonna be on special alert, this is after the sanctions were, were announced, President Biden said, you know, we're not going on alert. In fact, I think we stopped having some kind of nuclear uh, exercise that we were going to have in the U.S. just because we want we're trying to lower the temperature. Mm-hmm. I think probably what it means is that the this administration and the Europeans together, we have to be very careful to make sure that this war doesn't inadvertently spread yeah. uh, west to one of Ukraine's neighbors, for instance, Poland, because we know that the lethal weaponry and other things are being supplied over the ground uh, through Poland to Ukraine. And what would not be good would be clearly a war, which then involves Russia and a NATO member. So I think that probably looking at Putin, this would, you know, that argues for extra caution and and just, you know, watching very carefully what's, what's happening in reality with the Russian nuclear forces.
0: Yeah. I have a working theory on this. Listeners to this program know this. I think it's worth repeating. This year does mark the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet Union in 1922. Putin, as we know, is very, very, very cognizant of symbolism and of anniversaries. Putin himself turned 70 this year. He's beginning to think of his place in history. He's positively obsessed with Ukraine. Um, Remember back in 2008 at the NATO summit in Bucharest when he said to then-President George W. Bush, it's not even a real country. You, Angela, referenced his delusional article last spring, which, uh, I mean, was – I mean, the the history was so wrong you couldn't even begin to fact-check the thing. But he is absolutely obsessed with Ukraine, and this is something that kept coming into the discussions in the run-up to this. When those that thought he wasn't going to do it always said – Putin's cautious, Putin's pragmatic, he he avoids risk. And I said, yes, except for things that are of really high priority. And he, for whatever reason, views Ukraine as existential to him, Mm -hmm. as, as central to his place in History. Do you? How much do you think this? these symbolic things are playing into it in terms of his culture?
1: No, I think, you know, he is a history man, as Fiona Hill said in uh, her book about Putin. He he studies history. He understands history in his own way, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we have the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet Union. I think he is obsessed with his role really in the tradition of the czars who gathered in the land yes. after some catastrophe happened to the Russian Empire. And so he seizes his mission. To reverse you know, the results of the Soviet collapse, to relitigate the settlement that happened after that. Yeah. And in his mind, I think Ukraine and Belarus, this union of Slavic countries is particularly uh, important to him. Because I think, you know, one could see going forward, a real union state or Belarus really being absorbed by Russia. And then I think the next part of that would be Ukraine. And so he could say, at least I've gathered back these lands. Uh, you can also look at what he's been doing, what the Russian troops did in order to prop up the the government in, in Kazakhstan. Yes. And, you know, we know that northern Kazakhstan is, uh, has a heavy number of Slavic population, Russians and Ukrainians. I, I'm not sure that Putin's trying to reunite those lands. This is what Solzhenitsyn had once suggested. But I do think that he has this obsession with Ukraine, with gathering in the lands and having the Slavic Union again.
0: And I think genuinely doesn't believe that Ukrainians are different
1: from Russians.
0: Yeah, I've been noticing a debate going on in the Russian media prior to the invasion, I mean, the months prior to the invasion. And it wasn't about whether to put the Soviet Union back together again. It was in what form should we put the Soviet Union? Back together again. There are those like Mikhailov who are saying things like, "Let's just put the Slavic states back in the union together." Then you had other nationalist voices weighing in, saying, "No, no, we can get Kazakhstan too. We can get the Caucasus too." So this, this, I, and I thought the nature of this debate. Was actually really really telling. Um, I think the linchpin in this was Russia's ability to, I say, softly annex Belarus without firing a shot. Because yeah. there has been this steady. I mean, Belarus has ceased to be a sovereign state in all but in all but formalities and name right now. Uh, Lukashenko doesn't really have any agency right now, in 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 my opinion. That was a change. That was a sea change because Belarus was in a very different place before August of 2020. And being able to bring Belarus in kind of changed the strategic equation on the ground. Now they could attack Ukraine from the north as well as from the east. Um, So that's one piece of the puzzle. And then Ukraine is the other piece. Do you think the, the Belarus piece accelerated this possibly? I think it quite well could have. I mean,
1: uh, Putin was very lucky. You know, you had this disputed election and and all the protests. And, you know, from what we understand, Lukashenko was not Putin's favorite leader uh, beforehand. They had quite a lot of tensions. And at different points, Lukashenko kind of reached out to the European Union and was trying to play both sides. But clearly, since this uh, disputed election, he's become, you know, he made the choice to become completely dependent on Putin. And, yes, this is a soft annexation, as you say, already going on. And I'm sure, I don't know how long he'll be in power, uh, but, uh, you know, Belarus's fate has been sealed, at least for the moment. And, you know, Russia, he's already said, right, we could, we're could we willing to take Russian nuclear weapons there. I mean, the next part of the scenario would be creating the Slavic state and being able to deploy, um, you know, Russian nuclear weapons further west. Uh, thereby threatening Europe more. And we shouldn't forget, you know, that in the second uh, treaty, the the treaty that was given (laughs) to NATO in December, the Russians said NATO has to withdraw to its 1997 military posture. So we see that Putin has his sights not only on Ukraine yes. and Belarus and the Slavic states but the former Warsaw pact uh you know and then we had that bizarre remark from Sergey Lavrov a number of weeks ago saying that when the Warsaw pact broke up eastern europe was quote unquote orphaned because it lost <laughs> the russian right so uh he doesn't say things unprompted. you know Yeah so i you know we are now left questioning how uh, how far west does Putin really want Russia to move?
0: Yeah, and I am I am getting a lot of late night texts from from friends in former Warsaw Pact countries that are that are worried about precisely this. I mean, on the positive side, even though Belarus is, appears to be lost for the moment, there is a bit of a rebellion below the deck. See, I did write about this this week for my for my Atlantic Council column about the the hackers in Belarus that are hacking the uh, the railways to prevent the Russian troops from getting to the front. You have Belarusian. Volunteers going to Ukraine to fight on the Ukrainian side. I mean, not a lot of them yet, but still, you 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 have some doing this. So you you have this almost this this unexpectedly paradoxical situation: is the invasion has united Ukraine like it's never been united before? It's united the West like I haven't seen it in decades. Um, but yet, it appears to be dividing to a degree. Russia. In Belarus now, whether that will turn into something that is a long-term factor in this, of course, remains to be seen. But I'm, I'm, if this holds up, I would think that this this is not going to end well for Putin. No,
1: no, and you know what you see. You you talked about the the Belarusians who are volunteering. Funnily enough, we're now in a situation we can go back to the Spanish Civil War yes. and the international brigades, right? You've got foreign volunteers who are now volunteering to go and fight with the Ukrainians against the Russians. Uh, I did also want to, again, highlight your point about the Europeans. I've been following German-Soviet and German-Russian yep. relations for a very long time. If you had told me that we're in the space <laughs> of a weekend, German 50 years of German Ostpolitik uh, and reaching out to Russia and always believed that engagement was important, that that could just be thrust aside And Germany now uh, supplying lethal weapons to the Ukrainians, shutting down the Nord Stream pipeline, um, uh, sending, uh, you know, sending these weapons more money, you know, fully supporting Ukraine. I think it finally got through to them that they, you know, their assumptions about dealing with Russia
0: were really misplaced. Yeah, and spending 2% of GDP on defense, too. This kind of got, this would have been, you know, the major, major news just a couple of months ago if Germany had. Had done that, but this almost got kind of got lost in the shuffle. So I, I would the the change in Germany has been remarkable. Even the pro-Putin regimes, if you will, like, like Viktor Orban in Hungary are actually on board, which is which is actually surprising. I, I mean, this, this is something that I, I, I never thought I'd see. Um, I hope we can keep it going. I, I hope it continues. You've raised the issue of the, the nuclear threats. And again, this is something that's on a lot of people's minds right now. Um, I had a friend text me from the Czech Republic asking me if this is, you know, if this looks like it's, it's, it's going to be serious. Do we need to worry about this? Should I move to Australia? You know, things like this. This does feel to me, I I was born just a few months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, so I've never seen anything like this. And is this, I mean, is this the closest we've been to a nuclear confrontation in, in, it certainly feels like in my lifetime, unless we consider the, the 1982 thing that we all learned about after the fact. How nervous should we be about this?
1: Well, I mean, I think we should be nervous. I do remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, and obviously that we really did think we could have been on the brink of nuclear war. What makes me nervous is that in the past few years, I've had conversations with kind of the Russian expert community, and I've read things that they write, where they talk in a sober way about the possibility of limited nuclear war uh, and the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And that's been out there, you know, in the expert community and, of course, on some of these uh crazy, the Sunday night TV shows uh, in Russia. But the idea that they could conceive of a limited nuclear war with tactical nuclear weapons. Now, we hope that they wouldn't actually do it. But the fact that this is part of what they talk about um, makes one realize you have to take this seriously. Um, And therefore, that argues, again, for not getting into a conflict, a direct conflict with Russia uh, that involves a NATO member, because if it did then clearly um, NATO has an Article 5 and it would be, you know, it would be there to yep. defend its uh, fellow members. And that would involve a direct conflict with Russia. Now, the other scenario I remember, um, you know, um, after the annexation of Crimea, you know, around that time, 2014, 2015, uh, there were a number of studies done and I participated in some of these scenario things with the Rand Corporation where people looked into, would Russia have now designs on the Baltic states because people worried about that after mm-hmm. Crimea and in some of those scenarios you know the the people who focus on dealing with these nuclear issues said one of the things we had to think about was the possible use of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, And as someone who doesn't think about this every day, I was horrified, but I understood that, you know, that that you cannot discount the possibility. This isn't the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in as much as, you know, we we don't have weapons deployed, you know, very, very near to the continental United States. But at that point, remember, we were dealing with Nikita Khrushchev and we didn't real you know, we weren't quite sure how rational he was. If you've read about this, there were two different letters that were sent um, by Khrushchev in response to the Kennedy administration, and they ignored the one that was belligerent, and they listened to the one that was less belligerent, Mm -hmm. and the thing was resolved. But we are in a similar situation in as much as, you know, all the things we've been talking about. We're not sure how rational the Russian leadership is. Uh, So, you know, you hope that there are people around um, Putin who are more rational. We did have... This letter that was published a number of weeks ago by former army generals, yes. uh, led by General Ivashov, who I know is a controversial figure, but it could represent uh, more than just his group. Other military people who wanted something like that to be published, you know, who were very critical. And this is before yeah. the invasion. So, you know, that we, we don't know enough about the mindset of all those people.
0: Yeah. And I mean, uh, beyond the rationality question, something that's really been bugging me for a while is that like, when you look at the Soviet leadership, despite their flaws, and they were legion, of course, they understood the responsibilities that went along with being the custodians of a nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not sure this group of leadership fuels feels that responsibility. They talk very loosely about nukes, not just in this particular situation, but for 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 years going back, they're always kind of engaging in kind of implicit nuclear blackmail. We both remember when when President Reagan got caught on the hot mic, you know, <laughs> saying he was going to bomb the Soviet Union and it was a major scandal here. You just, yeah. A US president doesn't talk like that because you have to be the responsible custodian of a nuclear arsenal. These guys don't feel that responsibility. And that that gives me a bit of pause. Does it give you pause?
1: Yeah. I mean, the problem is you have a country that's run by people from the intelligence services. And even in the Soviet era, the Communist Party, you know, had control over the KGB, you know, not the other way around. And so I think some of the restraints that existed even in the Soviet system apparently don't exist in this system or with the people who are running the country at the mm. moment. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that that does have to give us, you know, uh, cause for pause and uh, to
0: think about what the implications could be. And the thing the, the thing that would precede that, of course, would be the conflict, as you mentioned, Angela, metastasizing and escalating. And I, uh, like you, I've been talking to a lot of people over the over the past week about this. And there seems to be a lot of concerns, um, at least among U.S. policymakers, of the possibility that this thing could spread to, uh, to a NATO member, and this is actually complicating efforts to get we- weapons delivered into Ukraine because there's fears that, you know, if we do, do deliver fighter jets to, to Ukraine, then that could be seen by Moscow as an escalation, and then that could possibly cause the, the conflict to metastasize, but yet these weapons deliveries are, are going. I mean, how, how do you strike the balance between those two things?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very difficult balance. I mean, the weapons are going; they're probably not going as quickly. Um, yeah. I, I listened to something this morning with the former prime minister, Yatsenyuk, and he said, "You know, please send us more weapons yeah. quickly." Uh, they are, you know, and it, it's, it's a very delicate operation. I mean, if you're driving things from Poland into Western Ukraine, uh, you have to then be you know very careful again that you don't encounter uh the russian military they're not really uh, in in western, in western ukraine, ukraine yet you know yet but of course the further east you drive uh they're there so that that's what you have to that's what you have to balance there and i know people have said maybe romania is also a, a place yeah. where, where some from which some of these things can be supplied the fighter aircraft and things like that but it is you have to be extremely careful because of course putin has been using the excuse that you know Ukraine represents a threat to Russia and that anything that Ukraine has you know links it has with NATO is a direct threat to Russia and so he can just not that he needs any more excuses
0: but he could right. retaliate yeah, I mean, if there's one thing Ukraine needs, I mean, they, they, of course they need the Stingers and of course they need the Javelins. Those are, those are really important. But what concerned me as this thing was starting was Ukraine's lack of an air force to speak of and their real need to get some fighter jets in there. Um, the problem is, as I am told by Eastern European military folks, is that even their MiGs have been retrofitted to NATO standards, so they can't really give those to Ukraine. They have to be kind of older MiGs. Um, who has those? I think Bulgaria has them. I think that's about it. Um, um, so it's, but, but, and again, how do you get a fighter jet into Ukraine without anybody noticing? That's the other thing I can't really figure out. You put it on a
1: train, right? I mean, some of the smaller weapons, obviously, you can, be they can be on a truck or a train or something, but not a fighter jet. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how they do that. Yeah. But- they, they, they do need it. And, you know, the Ukrainian military is obviously in much better shape than it was in 2014. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's still got s- sort of some work to do. Some people anticipated that the Russians would prosecute the war by doing aerial bombardments a lot, and just taking out some of the, uh, you know, the U- Ukrainian military assets. They haven't done that, that I know. Yet. You know they've now they're really going for sort of you know for the jugular they're really attacking the civilian population, yeah. bombing the and it, bombing the cities. Don't forget you know how did Putin come to power? He yep. was prime minister and then immediately prosecuted the second uh, Chechen this war. Course. They leveled Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, to the ground, uh, and they did all this kind of carpet bombing and things like that. So um, if they're using similar tactics like that in Ukraine, that you know today uh, Macron had a one and a half hour phone call yep. with and came away from that and said the worst is yet to come. So he must have a good sense of, of what might be coming.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm expecting carpet bombings of, of you know, sadly, you know, Kharkiv and Kyiv and possibly Mediupol, Um And this war is But the other, the fact of the matter is Russia still has an established air superiority which is right. absolutely crazy given the disparities <laughs> between the Russian air force and the Ukrainian air force i that this is something um, that you know i guess we're going to have to study this when this is all over to figure out what the hell actually, actually happened um on our end here i mean the, the sanctions i mean they've been dialed up not quite to 11 but to 8 or 9 right yeah. if we're if our sanctions at a scale of 1 to 10 we're maybe at a 2 they're they're probably up around a 8 how much room do we have left to escalate here
1: so, we've, I mean, we've had really tough financial sanctions, cutting off all the banks, uh, you know, injecting e- many institutions from SWIFT. Um, we've had, you know, export controls. Now, those in the long run will have a devastating effect yeah. on the Russian economy on its industrial base, on its ability to keep developing as a modern economy. But that, of course, isn't gonna be felt immediately. Um, you know, the one thing that we haven't done yet is to sanction The Russian Energy sector. the reason we haven't done that is, um, you know, and this is another thing that the Ukrainian leadership is, of course, advocating uh, is because a number of our allies in Europe uh, are still dependent on (laughs) Russian gas and Russian oil imports. Uh, Yes, the Germans are going to build two LNG terminals, but that's not going to happen tomorrow. So. We are juggling, we the U.S. juggling are, you know, the understanding that if you do cut off the energy sector, then you take away from Putin and his cronies the ability to, uh, you know, earn the hundreds of billions of dollars they're earning. And, of course, the price of oil keeps going up as this war goes on. But you have to balance that against, you know, not wanting to to freeze or starve the Europeans out. Uh, fortunately, it's we're beginning to get into the spring now. If this were two months earlier, it would be even more dire. But still, um, you know, the Europeans are still coming to terms with the fact that, you know, 50 years ago, they made the mistake of beginning to yeah. import- Soviet gas, and they're going to have to reorient themselves. So I think you, there could be more done in that um, in that area, and maybe there still will be more done. I don't know whether there, there may be more sanctions still against individual Russian oligarchs, yeah. but the ones we've had so far have really been pretty tough. You know, I think the British have a lot of work to do with all of those Russians who bought all those properties and insinuated yep. themselves into British political life, including getting peerages in the House of Lords. I mean, they they're still going to have to deal with that, you know, and all the all these Russians who've sort of been living in Europe for a long time and parking their money there. Um, so but I think otherwise, the you know, and I guess there could be a total swift ban. There is. Yeah. I think there the concern is, um, again. Uh, our allies.
0: Energy payments.
1: And then, you know, Russia and China are probably anyway going to try and move towards, and they have already c- creating an alternative uh, international payment system. I don't think it's going to be easy. Uh, but, you know, that's the, the other side of it, that you don't want to push an alternative system. Um, but, but otherwise, these have been remarkably harsh sanctions. And you have to give the Biden administration credit for working so hard with our European allies to get them to agree to this, because it was very difficult to get get agreement on a lot of them. And I really think, you know, the brutal way in this in which this war is being uh, prosecuted has really, you know, helped consolidate that European support for U.S. sanctions.
0: Yeah, no, I've said it many times. The the president and Secretary Blinken deserve a lot. This was some Delicate, delicate diplomacy, um, to get, the, especially to get the Germans to come around, to do things that they just really didn't want to do. Um, so the administration deserves a lot of credit there. Before we shift into the second part where I want to talk to broaden the aperture and look at the world of European security after this, the other thing I can't wrap my head around is Putin's endgame here. It's obviously regime change, yeah. um, but let's just say he's successful and he does manage to install a pro-Moscow government in Kiev that government's not going to survive a day without a lot of russian troops in ukraine i've heard they need about 800,000 to effectively pacify and occupy ukraine which they i don't think they have that many troops to spare how do you view this the, the end game because i'm having a hard time seeing how this ends one way or the other Well, i agree with you i mean clearly what they want to
1: do and what they wanted to do in the beginning was have you know a three-day blitzkrieg or whatever it was take kiev and then install a pro-russian government i'm not quite sure who was going to lead it i know various names were floating around but but as you say that government will not last an hour after the russian troops withdraw so uh, then do they really want to have all those troops occupying Ukraine? They can't afford it. Don't forget that all of their troops are from the, you know, Far East are now all focused that area. Do they really want to leave themselves completely vulnerable right. to China? You know, that's another question. So I don't know. I don't know what the end game is here because I think they thought that they would be able to win the hearts and minds of the Ukrainian population who were just waiting to be reunited with Russia. They're very wrong. So th- this would be... I mean, even if it's a partial occupation, it would still be a very brutal regime. You clearly have to have a lot of intelligence operatives there, Russians, you know, trying to keep the Ukrainian population down. There will be an insurgency. Um, it's a country with a lot of flat terrain. I know they're the Carpathian Mountains, so it's it, it's less easy for an insurgency to survive, but it will, and the West will support uh, resistance and an insurgency there too. And we, you know, we know that happened after the Bolshevik Revolution too, and it lasted a long time. Uh, in the Ukrainian social, Soviet Socialist Republic. So I'm not sure what the end game looks like for them uh, because it's going to be very costly and difficult for them.
0: Yeah, and that's a perfect way to segue into the second section here. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and discuss the new old world we will all wake up in when this war is over, regardless of how it ends. I'd like to remind you, you you're listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from somewhere in the D.C. metro area is Angela Stent, a professor at Georgetown University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and author of the 2019 book Putin's World Russia Against the West and With the Rest Angela also served in the US State Department's Office of Policy Planning in the administrations of both Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush she was also National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia in the Bush Administration and was a member of the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe's Advisory Panel I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to the Power Virtual Podcast on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Stitcher Spotify SoundCloud and TuneIn and if you do Please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Кадри, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. Нас никто
1: не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, в силу поправки, это Навальный. Я уже делаю раз свою раз... работу, а сотрудники а, безопасности. С новым да. годом вас. С новым веком.
0: Amid all the lack of clarity about how Russia's war on Ukraine will play out, one thing is absolutely clear, at least to me. The post-Cold War order is over. The age of optimistic globalization, in which we assume that interdependence would sublimate conflict into harmony, is over. And in terms of European security, we appear to be heading for a protracted era of great power competition, if not conflict, and a divided Europe, although it is still unclear where those lines in a divided Europe will be drawn. The way I like to put it to my students is like this. We are at an inflection point in which we are transitioning into something that will probably more resemble the world I grew up in, the Cold War world, rather than the world you grew up in, the post-Cold War, globalized world. Angela, how do you see European security going forward are we entering cold war 2.0 as the cliche likes to say or are we are we looking at something else or do we think the post cold war order that we've known for the, the past generation could somehow be preserved
1: well i think the system the european security system is broken or you can say russia has more or less broken it cold war 2.0 is one way of looking at it it means that you know as as we look forward. The U.S. and its allies really have to recommit themselves. They go back and read George Kennan's Mr. X article uh, published Mm. 75 years ago on containment. Very good analysis of what it was that drives Russia and how to deal with it. So it means, it will mean, more US troops in Europe. I know that this administration would wants to focus on China as the major mm-hmm. adversary in dealing with it. At the moment, that's really not possible. Uh, so it's more troops in Europe, it's getting the Europeans to do more for their own defense and we certainly saw that uh, with the Germans. But I'm not sure that that will be adequate. I, you know, Putin often talks about wanting a new Yalta. So you divide uh, the world into three uh, spheres of influence, China, Russia and the United States. But I think what we see happening now is what Putin wants is a disruptive world order, a Hobbesian world order, a world order where there are no rules. Um, And by the way, I don't think that's what the Chinese want, even though they about a post west order they want something that has rules so the question is will we be able to recreate a system with rules uh, that both russia and the united states will observe and at the moment You know that's very hard to see uh with you know we're sitting here saying we don't know uh where putin is going to stop how far he wants to go so um we are looking uh, you know he wants to relitigate the post cold war euro atlantic security system he essentially wants nato to go away or at least to go back to where it was before it began to expand I don't think that's going to happen. I think what he has done has had the exact opposite effect of what he wants. And that is NATO was now much more united after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and all the difficulties with that. People were wondering how long will it survive? What will its major goal be? Now we know it's containing Russia. So he has certainly revived that. Um, But this is a different world. This is not the world uh, of the Cold War. We obviously have China as a major, major rising power. We have other countries... uh, that that are also rising powers here. So, um, and there are, if you look at the United Nations General Assembly vote, uh, certainly uh, Russia had over, I mean, was overwhelmingly condemned by a hundred and I don't know how many, was 40 something countries. But you did have, you know, some, players like India, obviously China, and um, other countries that abstain from this. So I have, mm-hmm. to, you have to remember, you know, the subtitle of my book, right? It's Putin's World, Russia against the West and with the rest. That there's still significant number of countries in the world, at least up till now, who have regarded Russia as, you know, it's a large authoritarian country, but we can do business with it. Mm-hmm. Some of this may be changing now uh, with what's happening with the war. But we cannot expect wholesale condemnation um, from that many uh, countries in the world for what Russia has done. So I just say that going forward, it will be a new Cold War. It will certainly be the West. Against Russia, but we're also in a cyber world, which we weren't in during the Cold War. Mm, There are many, many other um, dimensions of that Cold War, which will be different. I mean, we know the Russians, you know, are very good, as we know, at disinformation. Uh, So that that aspect of it will continue, and there we probably we in the West will have to get better at countering.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the I'm 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 pretty convinced we're headed to a divided Europe. The question is just where is those where are those dividing lines going to be drawn? Um, One line is obviously along Belarus's western border. That seems clear. Where right now it's being fought over where the lines are going to be drawn in ukraine and you could have a number of options a number of possible outcomes there um the one i would prefer is that the dividing line is on ukraine's eastern border and ukraine is safely nestled in the west and then becomes nato's newest frontline state Um, that's the outcome i prefer that doesn't mean it's going to happen it's equally possible that it could be along ukraine's western border with ukraine on the wrong side of this you could see a partition of ukraine Um, You could possibly see a partition of Ukraine. Ukraine could become the Germany of this new Cold War. So these are the things that I think we're being fought over, but some things are going clearly in one direction. Europe seems to be finally breaking its addiction to Russian energy. It's going to take a long time to get there, Um, but as you mentioned, the LNG terminals that are being built in Germany, there already are LNG terminals, if I'm not mistaken, in Lithuania and yep. Finland, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so we're going to see the energy piece is going to change. You're seeing, you for years now, the Baltic states and Poland have been screaming for a permanent U.S. troop presence. Well, guess what? That's coming. I would be very surprised if we didn't see a major permanent U.S. military base in Poland, something something the, uh, on the scale of Rammstein. And I, I was hoping to get General Hodges on the on the podcast this week, but he's traveling at the moment to talk about that. I know that's something he's been advocating for a long time. So you see that we've been trying to get Europe to increase their defense spending to two percent. Well, guess what? They're doing it. I mean, Germany went up to two percent. But then Romania yesterday announced that it's, it's already over two percent and it's increasing it even more uh, up to two and a half percent. So. All these trends are happening, which seem to be moving us inexorably towards this, this divided Europe. What do you think that's going to look like? I mean, are we going to have troops facing off against each other against the, and along these new lines along the the Lithuanian or Polish, you know, and Belarusian border? How what is this going to look like going forward?
1: Well, I mean, it might well look like that going forward, and I, like you, hope that the dividing line would be at the Ukrainian-Russian border. But at the moment, you know, that's a little bit hard to envisage. Yeah, I think we would have we'll have troops facing each other now. All of this, you know, we're saying all of this. Let's see what happens inside Russia. Um, yeah you know is the is the, this ultimately could have very negative effects on the for the current people in the kremlin if there were a different regime in russia uh maybe it doesn't look like this uh in 10 years i mean not to jump to conclusions uh and of course there are a lot of people around putin who share similar views to him uh so the and but i mean i think as long as he and the people who support him are in power, this is what it's going to look like. Uh, We are going to have troops facing each other um, if there's the domestic support in the U.S. And this is another thing about Cold War 2.0. In Cold War, in the Cold War, we were a pretty united country in terms of our values and our belief in democracy. Of course, there was the Vietnam War and there were protests and there were culture wars then. But the kind of divisions we see in our country now and the questioning of democracy and we know that there are people in the wings ready to come into office who really have a very different vision now of what the u.s domestic system will look like so we aren't nearly as united as we were during the cold war and it might be more difficult therefore to sustain you know, a long term troop presence there. So I think one of the things uh, we, you know, we should be focusing on as we look into Cold War 2.0 is trying to heal some of these divisions and trying to get people again to recommit to, you know, the American ideals of democracy in the U.S. Constitution, uh, which at the moment, you know, looks like a pretty hard task.
0: I saw some of your colleagues at the Brookings Institution wrote a piece comparing Biden's State of the Union, comparing and contrasting it to Truman's time, Um, and because the, the, the Cold War consensus didn't happen by itself. It happened because there was a concerted effort by the Truman administration to build that consensus uh, together with the European allies. And I mean, I looking at the looking at President Biden's State of the Union, he seemed to be trying to build something along the lines of that kind of consensus. And there does seem to be more bipartisan support for this than we had before. Of course, you do have some, you know, people on cable news, uh, you know, voicing support for Putin and 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 whatnot. But by and large, it seems that. That the Republicans seem to be with the president on this, no?
1: I think so. I mean, one of you know, we've got such a divided Congress, and the one thing they seem to agree on exactly is is they see Russia, you know, as a major adversary, and they've all been in favor of sanctions. And some of the Republicans wanted these sanctions to be imposed before the war. So, there, yeah, there is. But, you know, you, you do have, as you alluded to people on certain cable TV stations, and there is a part of the Trump wing of the Republican Party yeah. uh, that supports Putin. Um, it's not a majority of people. But I think we just have to acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, but we also have to acknowledge that the the horrible images we're seeing around the world are, I mean, anybody that is is speaking out in favor of Putin right now, quite frankly, looks, uh, you know, if not morally abhorrent, at least ridiculous. Um, And so I think that's that's actually going to move it. I'm very conscious of the time, Angela, because I know you have to stop. So I'm looking at the clock. Um, Anything you want to add before we wrap it up? No, I think. I mean, we've covered we've covered all of this,
1: and I think we just have to be watching now uh, in the next few days and weeks uh, how long the Ukrainians can hold out, yeah. and and whether there's any feedback mechanism. I mean, I see today that the um, Russians and Ukrainians have agreed for a temporary ceasefire in some yeah. local areas to allow a humanitarian corridor to to be created, and let's hope there's more of that.
0: Yeah, and let's see if the Russians actually honor the ceasefire, because they, they their, their definition of ceasefire usually means you seize and I keep firing, so I, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that. All right, on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global action Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me Somewhere in northwest Washington, D.C., has been Angela Stent, professor at Georgetown University, a non resident senior fellow at the Perkins Institution, and author of the highly relevant 2019 book, Putin's World Russia Against the West and With the Rest. Everybody should. Read that if you haven't done so already. Angela also served in the U.S. State Department's Office of Policy Planning in the administrations of both Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. She was also National Intelligence Officer for Eurasia in the Bush administration and was a member of the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe's Advisory Panel. Thank you, Angela, for an enlightening discussion.
1: Thank you very much, Brian, I
0: enjoyed it. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights and all the complicated machines in working order and well-oiled throughout our discussion and Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team